Tom and Sue, well done. I think that you get the award for longest scripture reading in the history of our church, and yet you uh, read it so well, friends. Uh, My name is Charlie Dunn. It's great to get to be uh, with each of you this morning. If you've been with us for these last several weeks, you know this is not the first time we've read from uh, the Old Testament book of Daniel. We've been in this series uh, in this book. I'm asking the question, how do we approach our daily work as worship? Uh, Whatever work that might be, whatever it is that God has called you to do, whether that is paid work or unpaid work, uh, whether you find yourself uh, maybe caring for uh, children at home or uh, perhaps you are retired, um, whatever that work might be that you are doing, how do you approach that as worship? And There we go. I think we got the sound uh, back a little bit bit better. So uh, that's been our question really all throughout this series. How do we do that daily work in a way where we can connect uh, our work to God's work, where we can integrate our faith and work together? And for those of you who enjoy reading about uh, workplace leadership, I don't know if any of you like reading books about uh, leadership in the workplace. If so, there's a really good chance you have probably come across a book by an author named Jim Collins called From Good to Great. Uh, Maybe some of you have read that before, and essentially the premise is that Jim Collins and his team, they, they studied a number of Fortune 500 companies, and what they wanted to deduce was why was it that some of these companies were able to make the transition? They were able to go from being a, a good company to being a great company. They were able to really um, exceed what the market was doing for a number of years, and and why were they able to have that prolonged success? And in the course of this study, they found a number of common denominators between these so-called great companies, and among their findings, there was one that was by far and away the most surprising uh, to Jim Collins and his team. And, And that finding had to do with the character of the leaders who led these companies. He said these people were absolutely hardworking, they were driven, they were very much committed to the success of their company, but along with that commitment and determination, there was this profound personal humility. He said the leaders who led the best companies, these companies that went from good to great, had this remarkable personal humility in the way that they went about their work. Here's how he puts it. He says, in contrast to the very me-centric style of the comparison leaders, we were struck by how the good to great leaders, they didn't talk about themselves. During interviews with the good to great leaders, they would talk about the company, they would talk about contributions of other executives as long as we would like, but then they would deflect discussion about their own contributions. When I pressed them to talk about themselves, they would say things like, well, I hope I'm not sounding like a big shot. Or, you know, if the board hadn't picked such great successors, you probably wouldn't be talking with me here today. I don't think I can take that much of the credit. We were blessed with really marvelous people. There were plenty of people in the company who could probably do this job as well as me. And Collins adds, he says, you know, this wasn't just false modesty. You know, for the sake of looking like a humble person in these interviews, he said those who worked with or wrote about 
the good to great leaders, they, they continually used words like quiet, humble, modest, reserved, shy, gracious, mild-mannered, self-effacing, understated, did not believe their own press clippings, and so forth. And he says this was particularly striking to learn about this, this genuine humility of these leaders when you, would, when you would put it in contrast with some of the leaders of, of these other companies. You know, for instance, with somebody like Lee Iacocca. Anybody heard of Lee Iacocca before? He was the, the, the chairman of uh, Chrysler. And Collins points out the fact that Iacocca did um, lead this very celebrated turnaround uh, of this company. But he says, you know, halfway into his tenure, that he started to turn his attention towards celebrating himself. And so he would go on talk shows, he would star in commercials, he thought about running for president. He said, you know, running Chrysler has been a bigger job than running the country, and I could handle the national economy in six months. Seems pretty confident. <laughs> Apparently, he widely promoted his own autobiography. But in the last half of his time at Chrysler, the stock value fell 31% behind the market. He had trouble leaving center stage. He postponed his retirement so many times that people in the company started to joke that Iacocca stood for, I am chairman of Chrysler Corporation always. <laughs> and apparently when he did actually retire, um, he demanded that the board give him a private jet, stock options. Later, he tried to engineer a hostile takeover of the company that did more harm uh, to this company that he had been so involved in. Collins and his team, they were struck by how it was actually the most humble leaders who were able to provide the best leadership for their organizations, that those who work with humility are able to actually perform the best work. And this is true not only to Collins' study, I think it's also true to our experience. And you know, many of you completed that, that faith in the workplace survey that we sent out, and one of the questions had to do with what are the qualities that you most admire in a boss, in a supervisor, in somebody that you've worked for, and, and time and again, um, we, we saw this consistent theme of if, if you could work for somebody who really knew how to steward their power with servant leadership, uh, someone who was humble, who was willing to, to, to give credit and, and praise to other people in the organization, uh, somebody who recognized the gifts and abilities of others, Somebody who, when you made a mistake, they didn't just really, you know, berate you or come down on you. They were able to respond with some, some grace. Um, perhaps those who were willing to roll up their sleeves and get involved to do work that they wouldn't view as if it were beneath them. They were willing to help out wherever um, that need might be. Uh, many of you talked about just the value of working under that kind of, of humble leadership. And of course, I think each of us could also attest that when it comes to, to who we're working with, I mean, wouldn't we prefer to work with somebody who's a team player rather than somebody who's just a hog of credit and, and focused on, you know, pursuing their own self-interest, somebody who's actually out for something bigger than themselves? We love working for people who are humble. We love working with people who are humble. And yet, and yet even if we might recognize um, that the best work is done 
uh, by those who are working with humility, I think if we are honest with ourselves, and we can also recognize that that's pretty rare, and that it may also at times be rare in ourselves as well, that we struggle, we find it difficult to work with the kind of humility that we need, the kind of humility that we long for in other people, and actually the kind of humility that I would suggest brings far greater joy and satisfaction when you are working from that place. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to, to look at this story that Tom and Sue read for us, this remarkable, humbling transformation of King Nebuchadnezzar. And I want to do so um, asking three questions. Here they are. Uh, first, why is it often so difficult to work with humility? Um, secondly, how do we become humble people? who then are able to do our work with humility? And then third and finally, what does it really look like to approach our work from this Christian humility? So let's walk through these three questions together. So here's the first. Why is it often so difficult to do our work with humility? And I think we see at least three answers uh, in this story of King Nebuchadnezzar. Here they are first. Uh, it's often really difficult um, to do our work with humility, um, often because if you're good at your job, um, the, the more that you are capable in your job, the better that you do in your job, the more workplace experience and success that you enjoy, actually the more um, pride um, we are tempted um, to experience and, and feel. So look at King Nebuchadnezzar. Um, we're told that he has this dream. It's a terrifying dream, and Daniel comes in to give the interpretation to him. Look what Daniel says, verse 22. He says, your majesty, you saw this tree, this glorious tree that was stretching to the heavens and filled with fruit. What does Daniel say to Nebuchadnezzar? He says, your majesty, you are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. And, and friends, this is not flattery. You know, Daniel's willing to speak the truth to this king. We're going to see that in just a moment. He is telling him, look, it is, it is universally acknowledged that you are an incredible king. You, you, you've been a very effective emperor. You know, Nebuchadnezzar was, was able to conquer militarily all of their, their, their opponents, right? They, they defeated all of the, the different nations that warred against them. Uh, he was known for his very effective administration of the Babylonian Empire for the way that he was able to assimilate and involve people from various different cultures that they would conquer. Uh, he had accomplished some great architectural feats, the wall that went around the city of Babylon, the hanging gardens that were known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. He, he had been a very successful, very effective government administrator. And you might look at that and you might say, well, gosh, how could that not start to go to your head? And yet, isn't that just the point? That the shadow side often of good work, the shadow side of being successful in your work, the shadow side of having great gifts that you bring to your work, is that often the more successful you are in your work, the more likely you are to begin to have a posture of pride. 
to begin to start to maybe uh, feel like you know better than your coworkers. Maybe it actually starts to make you a less effective worker because you assume, look, I, I know, I've had the experience. I've been there. We've tried that. We've done that before. Maybe you start to feel a little bit dismissive of people who suggest ideas to you. You're not able to receive those. You become less teachable because you think, look, I've, I've done this so well. And actually, the danger for us is not just that we become proud when it comes to our ability in our particular work area. The danger is that often we tend to translate our workplace success into other realms of life as well. So we tend to think, well, because I'm really good at my job, then I also probably would be really good at these other things too. Or because I know a lot about this area, I must know a lot about these areas. So you start telling your kids' teachers how they should be teaching. Even though you've never been a teacher, you start telling your church leaders how to run the church, or you start telling your, your neighbors and your friends how they should be parenting or how they should be approaching their marriage. We tend to take one area of success and to then generalize it to the rest of our lives, and it can feed this sense of pride. Actually, the more success we may have in our workplace. So that's one reason why we may struggle to work with humility. Here's a second one. It's often difficult to work with humility because though we are really good at recognizing pride in other people, we're really good at being able to notice when we think, man, that person, they think they're such a much, they think they're so full of themselves. We can spot pride a mile away in other people. We're often not particularly good at seeing it in ourselves until we go through some kind of life-disrupting experience, some kind of potentially humbling sort of experience. Look at Nebuchadnezzar here in this story. Verse 4, he says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. Life was good. And then I had a dream that made me afraid. And if the dream itself was scary, the interpretation was even more scary because Daniel comes to him and he says, yes, you are this great tree, but you are going to be cut to the ground and all that's going to be left is a stump in chains. And you see, this was a terrifying experience. This was a life-disrupting experience for Nebuchadnezzar to have this dream, a dream that potentially could have been humbling for him. In fact, that's how Daniel encourages him to respond to it, doesn't he? He says, look, king, you should humble yourself. This is an opportunity, this dream, for you to repent of your pride. And you see, here's the thing, friends. I'll tell you this. God is not only loving and gracious to Nebuchadnezzar. God is so merciful he is so loving. He, he is so good to each one of us. And God knows just what a cancer pride can be to our souls. That he will send us Daniels. He will send us visions. He will send us dreams if we will recognize them for what they are that can potentially expose our pride and help to heal us and free us from it. Now, I think back to my own workplace experience, and I hesitate to share this story because um, I, I find it rather embarrassing, frankly, looking back on it. And um, yet I think that's probably my pride that would keep me from wanting to share this with you. So I probably should. So 
Um, I, I will, um, but I, I think back in my workplace experience about eight years ago, um, I was working at a church, I was working at Holland Park Prez, and uh, I was a pastoral resident. I was about a year and a half into a kind of a time-bound two-year role. And I had just um, broken up kind of a, a, a longer relationship. And so for me, my job was very much a, a source of, of identity and significance. And um, I had been uh, offered a job uh, by the um, executive director at the church at that time. I'd been offered a job to be um, in this long-term role as a pastor for Christian education. And I was really excited about this job. I thought, this is great. I'm going to pour myself into this. And um, just a week before uh, that job was going to be finalized, I got a phone call um, from the executive director. And he called and he said, listen, I'm so sorry um, to tell you this, but we're not able um, to, to finalize that position. Um, we, we may not be able to, to have you enter into that role. Uh, we don't know. Maybe we will. Maybe we won't. But the, the search committee... Uh, that has been looking for our new senior pastor. They found someone that they want to call. And, and so we need to wait to hire anybody. We need to put a freeze on our hiring until we can give this new senior pastor the opportunity to come in, um, to make their own assessment, to determine um, who to hire and how to staff the church. Now that makes a lot of sense uh, to me now. Looking at it now with my perspective, I can say that's great. I think I would want that same opportunity if I were in that same role and place. Friends, would you believe uh, that's not how I responded <laughs> in that moment then? And, and I'm embarrassed, honestly, to, to look back. And, and, and I remember, I remember um, not just disliking that phone call. I remember calling the head of the HR committee. I remember making my case to him and saying, why can't they hire me if you really know me already? And and, and, and I look back and I just, I see the entitlement. I see the pride. And, and I think by the grace of God, um, he used that experience uh, to, to help humble me, uh, to help me to be able to see some of that pride, actually to help uh, me to find a little less of my identity where I was looking for it, my security and my, my self-worth in my job versus finding that in Jesus. And can I just suggest to us this morning that, you know, sometimes those humbling, undesirable workplace experiences, maybe you get passed over for a promotion. Maybe you don't get that, that pay bump that you feel like you have earned and deserved. Maybe you feel like something that you did wrong is kind of acknowledged or called out in front of some of your, your coworkers, and that's embarrassing. Or, or, or maybe there is... Is, is just some way in which you're wanting to advance in your, your career and that hasn't been afforded. Maybe you don't have a job and, and you're asked at a party or a social gathering, again, what do you do for a living? And you feel that, that discomfort, that embarrassment of having to give an answer to that question. You shouldn't feel shame over that, but maybe you do. Can, can I suggest to you that, that maybe those are actually moments of God's mercy? that maybe those are opportunities for us to be forged more deeply in this Christian humility, for us to be able to humble ourselves before God, that maybe he's using those as opportunities to heal us, to free us from the cancer of our pride, if we'll see them in that way, which we don't always do, do we? I mean, look at Nebuchadnezzar. 
Even though God has sent this dream, nevertheless, even though his pride is exposed, he does not want to repent of it. And that's the third reason why it's often difficult to work with humility, because even when we do see our pride, we often don't want to admit it. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, but he goes 12 months after that, and he hasn't changed his ways. And then one day he's standing and he's looking out at his kingdom. And what does he say? Verse 29, is not this the great Babylon that I have built as a royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? In other words, King Nebuchadnezzar, he wants to be able to take credit for his workplace successes, for the gifts and for the success that he has had as a king. He not only wants to take credit, really he wants to be able to worship himself for my glory, for my majesty. And and you see, the reason why, even when our pride is exposed, we often struggle to repent of it uh, is because of what Tim Keller calls a, a, a form of cosmic plagiarism, that we're all cosmic plagiarists, That there is this desire within each and every one of our hearts that that wants to essentially take credit for all of the good things in our lives. We want to take credit for our workplace success. We want to take credit for the gifts and the abilities that we have. Even though, what does the Bible tell us? The Bible says that every good thing in our lives is a gift from God. You know, the Bible says, what do you have that really you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast in it as though you did not? But we want to say, I'm the author of my life. I am the composer. I'm the one who has done these great things. We don't want to admit how utterly dependent we are on God and that everything in our life really is a gift from him. And Nebuchadnezzar doesn't want to admit that either. He refuses to humble himself before God. And so... What happens is that in the moment that he speaks these words, what Daniel had said would happen is fulfilled. In just an instant, his kingdom is stripped away from him. He actually loses his sanity. He begins to live like a wild animal. This is really a a pretty ironic sort of judgment from God because the person who had wanted to, to view himself as if he were God becomes like a wild animal until he can recognize that he is merely a human. And yet, Nebuchadnezzar's story does not end here, does it? And our story doesn't have to end there either. God in his grace can free us from that spiritual pride. How does that happen? How do we become humble people who can do our work with humility? There's our second question. Let's look at how it happens for Nebuchadnezzar. How does this happen for Nebuchadnezzar? Did you notice that before Nebuchadnezzar is humbled, where are his eyes? He's standing up at the top, looking down over his kingdom, right? And then he's looking in at himself. That's what pride does. Pride always fixes our eyes either downward, looking down on other people. How do I outshine them? How do I outdo them? Pride either has us looking down on people or it has us looking inward at ourselves. Look at my accomplishments. Look at my successes. So there's no room to look upward. But when is it that Nebuchadnezzar is healed? This is verse 34. He says, at the end of that time, I raised my eyes to heaven. He looks up. 
I raised my eyes to heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. Nebuchadnezzar looks up and what does he see when he looks up? He sees a king and a kingdom that is far greater than his own. He sees a glory that makes his glory pale by comparison. He sees that all of the gifts and the accomplishments that he was taking credit for before actually are gifts from this God, a God who he says is actually able to raise up the lowliest and to bring down the highest of kings. What else does he see? He says, verse 35, the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing before him. He's talking about himself. He realizes, look, before God, I have nothing to offer. I have nothing to contribute. He has a new, far more accurate view of himself. And then lastly, what he sees is he sees God's mercy. He sees God's grace. Do you notice the way he talks about how he got his kingdom back? He says that, that my kingdom was restored to me. My sanity was returned to me. He doesn't say I took them back or I won them back. He says they were returned. They were restored. He recognizes that these are now gifts from God, all of God's grace. It's when Nebuchadnezzar looks up to God that he begins to be healed of his spiritual pride. And listen, friends, if that was true for Nebuchadnezzar, with the little that he knew about the Most High God, how much more so can that be the case for those of us who know God through Jesus, who lift up our eyes to look at Jesus? You know, the book of Hebrews says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. Colossians chapter three says, fix your heart on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Friends, if you look up at Jesus, if you fix your eyes on Jesus, what are you going to see? Well, first you're going to see what we already sang about together this morning. Right? You're going to see that he is worthy of all praise. You're going to see that he is the most praiseworthy person in the history of the universe because he has done the most courageous, the most costly, the most self-giving thing that anybody has ever done as he went to the cross and suffered and died for sins that were not his own. And there will be people who will be praising Jesus for this for all eternity future. And I'll tell you, friends, listen, when you are singing the praises of Jesus, it's a lot harder to be singing your own, isn't it? We'll look up and we'll see the most praiseworthy person. I'll tell you what else you'll see if you look at Jesus. You're going to see scars on his hands, on his feet, on his side. You're going to see these, these reminders that the only way that the king of the universe could forgive our sin, our cosmic plagiarism, was by being willing to take the judgment for that sin upon himself. And listen, if seeing the fact that the only way you could be forgiven was for Jesus to die for you, if that does not humble you, I do not know what will. And then lastly, I'll tell you what you'll see. When you fix your eyes on Jesus, you're going to see his grace. You're going to see this undeserved glory that he lets you share in with him, that he's going to let you share in ruling over his kingdom. You're going to see this new status as a beloved child of God that he has given to you purely as a gift of his grace. And I'll tell you, that is more glory and honor 
honor and status than any heart could long for. And when you fix your eyes on Jesus in that way, I'll tell you, nothing will do more to humble your heart. When your eyes are fixed on Jesus, the one who humbled himself for us and to help us become people who are able to work with humility. So what does that look like? Lastly, let me just say very briefly, how do we then, as humbled people in Jesus, approach our work with humility? Let me suggest three things. If you're fixing your eyes on Jesus, I I think you're going to be a person um, who is able to better receive criticism. Better able to receive criticism as we face it uh, in the workplace. Just think about, you know, Daniel comes to Nebuchadnezzar, and he's critical, isn't he? He says, you need to repent of your pride. You need to show mercy to the oppressed. You need to to humble yourself and turn from your sin, right? He he speaks this criticism of Nebuchadnezzar. He doesn't receive it, right? He's too proud to receive that criticism. But I can guarantee you, after what he goes through, after he says God is able um, to humble those who walk with pride, I can guarantee you later on in his life, he was probably much more receptive to counsel and and advice and criticism or feedback that he might receive. Friends, how are you at receiving criticism in the workplace? Because if, if if we're Christians, if our eyes are fixed on Jesus, yeah, do we like being criticized? No, none of us do. But... But if if we remember the fact that that Jesus, the only way that we could be forgiven was for him to suffer and die for us, we can't be surprised to hear that we're not perfect, right? We can't be surprised to to hear that we are broken. We shouldn't be surprised to learn that maybe we could act in ways that might be inadvertently disrespectful or hurtful even to our other coworkers. And are we willing to receive that then and to say, hey, maybe there's something I need to to learn from this criticism, or even if that criticism isn't fair? And you know, sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's not right. Sometimes it's not accurate. Maybe you have to say, you know, I don't agree with that. That's okay. But in those moments, do do you fly off the handle? Are you so offended? Do you feel like, how dare you suggest that there's something wrong with me? Or do you think, you know, even if that's not true, what I do know is true is that I'm such a broken sinner that Jesus had to die for me. So I really can't be so furious and enraged that you would give me critical comments. How are you at receiving criticism? with humility. A second way it affects our approach is, I think, a willingness sometimes to do work that isn't particularly glorious. Sometimes just roll up your sleeves, work that needs to get done. I I don't really see this so much in this story, but I certainly saw it in the the survey responses. Many of you talked about leaders that you've worked for who were willing to, to do work that just needed to be done, whether it was in their job description or not. And, and, you know, I look out at this church and I see so many gifts, so many great abilities that, that I know you use in your work every day. And yet in the church, often um, there's a lot of inglorious work to be done. Chairs that need to be stacked or tables that are put out or, or, or taken up. Those who, who vacuum the floors or wipe down the classrooms for kids ministry. And I've seen you do this time and again in such a servant-hearted and, and humble way. As your eyes are looking at Jesus, who did not consider it beneath him to go to the cross for us. And I'll tell you, when you serve in those inglorious ways, it's not just an expression of humility. It actually forms you more in that 
humility. And then here's one last, one last thought. It will change the way we approach our work. In that, we will be willing to do our work in a way that doesn't overlook the people who often are overlooked. Did you notice what Daniel said to King Nebuchadnezzar when he calls him to repent of his pride? He says, show kindness to the poor or show kindness to the oppressed. Friends, I wonder, do you, do you know in your workplace who are the people whose work often goes overlooked? Maybe who are the people whose work is the least paid or least valued in the company in that way? Maybe do you, do you know those who sometimes do the unglamorous work of, of maybe cleaning the office space where you work? And do you take time to get to know them? Do you know their names? Do you know about their families? Do you have regular conversation with them? Because you recognize that, you know, before God, I was spiritually impoverished. I had nothing to offer. I had nothing to bring before him. So who am I to consider myself somehow better than or more important than others because they're doing a different kind of work in our organization? You know, I end with this. I, I mentioned a friend of mine um, a few weeks ago in a sermon who recently became CEO of, of a really large company. And, and he came into work a few days after that, and, and he was chatting with one of the janitors in their office building, a guy that he's gotten to know uh, over the years. One of the other executives saw that conversation. He approached him after, and he said to him, kind of jokingly, he said, well, you know, you're not going to be able to just chat with anybody now that you've got all these responsibilities. And, and I love my friend's response. He said, you know, he knew where it was coming from, but, but, but he said, look, if, 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 if now that I'm the CEO I think I'm too busy or I think I'm too important to, to talk with this man that I've gotten to know because he does a different kind of work within our organization that I have forgotten who I really am in Jesus. I'm not defined by my position or my job title. I'm defined as a beloved child of God, and so is he. And, and so, friends, my hope for all of us is that one of the ways that we would do our work very distinctly as Christians is that we would be a people who are marked by humility. The humility that we need to do our work well, the humility that we long for in other people, the kind of humble people that others want to work with as we fix our eyes on Jesus, the one who humbled himself for us. Let's pray as we come to the Lord's table this morning. Lord Jesus, if ever we needed a tangible way to fix our eyes upon you, to see you who humbled yourself to the point of the cross, becoming obedient even to death for us and for our sake, then we have it here in the Lord's Supper. And I pray, God, that we would be willing as we come to this table to let down our guard, to set aside our pride, to admit that the very reason why we come to this table is because we bring our need. That we would be people who would be able to say, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And that even as we come with our need, that we would find that you meet us with your undeserved grace.
And Jesus, that seeing the way that you have humbled yourself for us, seeing the way that you have loved us when we did not deserve it. I pray that even our experience of the Lord's table this morning would, would, would soften our hearts, would humble our hearts, would help us to be people who can do our work from that place of real humility. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Friends, on the night that our Lord Jesus was betrayed, after giving